Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... American Murderer Jason Derrick Brown was a small-time petty con man who spent most of his life one step ahead of the law or the mob, depending on the day of the week. That was until November 29, 2004, when this charismatic drifter decided to pull off one last big score and vanish into thin air. He carefully planned and executed the robbery of an armored car outside a movie theater and killed the guard in cold blood. He soon was placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, where he remained until September of this year, when he was removed to make room for another fugitive. At the time of this taping, Mr. Brown is still at large. Matthew Gentile wrote and directed the chilling film American Murderer, which follows Mr. Brown's exploits. The film opens in theaters on October 21st in advance of streaming nationwide. Matthew is my guest today. Good afternoon, Matthew. Thank you for having me. So um, my listeners will note that this is a bit of a departure from our regular fare here, uh, but not really. Several of the cases we've covered by way of guests who have written books, some of which have become, have become movies. In this case, we're removing the middleman and going right to the source, which is Matthew since he did all his own research to prepare the screenplay. It's not based on a book. So, Matthew, why don't we start with your background, uh, how you got into film, uh, your curriculum vitae, I think that's the correct term to it, in general. And then, of course, we're going to want to say how you found this project. Sure. Well, thank, thank you, Jim, for, for having me and for coming and seeing the film on the big screen. Um, so to give you some backstory, I was, you know, I, wanted to be a filmmaker for as long as I can remember. Um, when I was 12 years old, my father showed me the film Dog Day Afternoon, um, which I was too young to see. And uh, the film really spoke to me. It was a movie that, you know, after seeing that film, it was quite pivotal. And then I said to my father, this is, these are the kinds of movies I want to watch from here on in. And that led to The Godfather and <laughs> Goodfellas and Pulp Fiction and all the stuff I grew up loving. You know, I had a fascination with film noir, crime films, you know, a lot of kids my age were into Pokemon and other things. I was into gangsters and pirates and criminals. So for me, that was kind of, that was what spoke to, to me and my spirit for, for better or worse. Um, so when I was 14 years old, I used to, before I wanted to officially be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And I used to go on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list a lot. It was on their website, FBI.gov. And I would look at the fugitives list to see if I could help them catch a fugitive. And, you know, it was just a silly childhood dream I had that uh, turned into a, a career in true crime film. Um, basically, when I was 14, uh, 
I saw Jason Derrick Brown's face on the FBI.gov website. Um, that was when he first had committed the crime. He wasn't a top 10 fugitive yet, but his headshot had arrived there um, because he had committed first degree murder and armed robbery. And, you know, when you look at the FBI fugitives, top 10 or not, or top 100, there's a certain type, you know, and, and Jason certainly stood out from the pack. At the time on that list, you had Whitey Bulger, Osama bin Laden. So, you know, you're talking about very menacing, tough looking criminals, you know, even like masterminds. And then you have this surfer dude with spiky blonde hair from Southern California, or actually frosted tips, I should say. So he didn't fit the profile. Something about him seemed off, you know, like one of those questions of which one of these doesn't fit in. That was Jason. And so I remembered the face and that was about it. And then I want to say, I'm going to cut to 12 years later, I graduated from film school at the American Film Institute where I studied directing. And I had some experience before them working in the industry. I was an assistant William Morris in the mailroom before I came and assist in the talent department, you know, made a film with one week's paycheck. And uh, that got, which at the time was about $600. And that got me into film school at the AFI. So I moved to LA to go be a filmmaker, made a lot of short films. Some of those short films did quite two of those short films did quite well for me, got attention on the festival circuit, led to producers, some financiers being interested in what I was doing next. But the tough thing about graduating film school is you're always trying to figure out, you know, what your first movie is. What does that first feature look like, especially for a director? And I had a couple of things I was kicking around, different ideas, you know, you know, but I was kind of trying to find what would be a first feature that would, you know, be my be my voice and something I wanted to say. And one day I was storyboarding for a commercial shoot that I was doing. Um, and when I storyboard, I'm drawing out images and, you know, I have the TV on in the background and all of a sudden Jason Derrick Brown's face popped onto the TV and it came at a time and it feels quite faded because I was sitting there thinking, what's my first feature going to be? And then his face just popped and I looked and I turned the volume up and I started watching the, the segment on him. And I was just, I couldn't believe that he was still missing. And the documentary itself interviewed some people who knew him and, you know, an FBI agent who had been hunting him. And I just started to like, I, as I was watching, I just started to think to myself, I was like, why isn't this a film? This could be a really cool movie. You know, one of the movies that made me want to be a filmmaker was a film I watched called Vengeance is Mine. It's a film by Shoei Imamura made in 1979 about a serial killer uh, in Japan in the 70s, a true crime story also. And the character was, you know, despite being a serial killer, was really captivating. And I saw this film in, the, in the, a theater owned by Quentin Tarantino at the New Beverly Cinema. And um, the crowd just went absolutely wild. They were laughing. They were crying they were you know on the edge of their seat and i walked out of that theater saying i want to do that to an audience i want to make a movie like that um because i feel like that's missing you know in in, in film and tv today and that, that was what i said at the time so you know this movie kind of you know the story of jason hit me at the right time and i started to see you know that and what it really became about though you know on the surface you know and it still is. It's a you know, cat and mouse thriller, right? A FBI agent chasing a, con, a criminal, right? A con artist doing anything. But it's ultimately, to me, this is a film about actually about family and about 
the dark it's an examination of the dark side of the american dream it's about jason Derek brown but it's also about the people who knew him and loved him so there was quite a rich complex world in this story that went beyond just you know an armored truck robbery or a, a, a brutal murder it was really about a series of human beings who are enraptured in this guy's web and so that's how that's how the film really started to form and become a movie that i felt was worth you know making but it is a long way from getting an idea to pushing popcorn so how did you go about getting backing well um, you know i'm i'm quite lucky um i had a you know as a first-time director as you listed those six companies i had a lot of backing um you know it began with you know i was kicking around the script on my own for a while um i want to say about a year um and i had you know one great actor attached did name jonathan groff he did a proof of concept i was kind of kicking around independently trying to get it financed it was hard though you know it was you know it's not the script's not the, the movie's not the easiest sell on paper you know the character is quite despicable and you know people react <laughs> very differently to him it's been interesting to see how some people love him some people hate him some people love to hate him it's a lot of people fall anywhere in between so you know it wasn't the most um it didn't seem the most calculated move to do this movie and i got a lot of passes at first a lot of people were not you know into it and didn't, didn't understand you know, the script and to be fair to them at the time the script wasn't that great but you know i was pushing it around just trying to get it made and um you know this company traveling picture show two companies traveling picture show and gg films uh gg films ran by gia walsh traveling picture shows run by kevin madison carissa buffell um they had a producer named johnny wonder who i you know they say today when they told a story that it was on Instagram, I believe it came through my website that he emailed me. I guess he saw some of my shorts on festival websites and, and things like that. And he was tracking me. He had seen the short, my short Lawman, and he really liked that, which is a Western I did. And he had me come in and pitch it to Traveling Picture Show. Um, and Gia Walsh, the other producer who runs GG Film, she, came, she was attached to it before they were for a few months, and she was helping me kind of get it around and, you know, was able to, to raise part of the budget. So, you know, it was kind of like the two of these forces found each other and became partners on this movie. And they work together now on other things too. So it's really cool that that happened. But those three producers, Kevin, Carissa, and Gia, um, they really kind of stuck by the project, believed in it, developed it with me, optioned it for me, you know, and that was my, you know, I became a professional screenwriter because for a year I did rewrites and got the script into better shape. And, you know, so so the three, the four of us were kind of working on how could we get this thing off the ground, and it had so many. You know, independent film is filled with false starts and stops. So, it looked, you know, there was a lot of time. Like in 2019, I think was when we started officially developing it, and it looked like it would go in the summer, and it looked like we might go in the fall, and it looked like you know, and it just kept kind of. But the script kept getting better because I kept we kept doing more and more rewrites and work on it and development and just you know improving it wherever I could. You know, I had heard a story that. From my mentor that um milos foreman the great director well, the great late director who made the film amadeus and the writer peter schaefer who after winning the tony award the pulitzer and some other award for amadeus did 47 drafts of that screenplay and that was after his play had won all those awards and so billy ray always said to us well <laughs> if peter schaefer did 48 drafts you guys better do 400 I'm going to do 400. So, you know, he, and I, I always, I kind of always lived by that, you know, that a screenplay kind of is never done. Even like when you finish a movie, you're working on it through the edit, you're rewriting constantly. So, you know, it was a lot of that. And, um, 
by the time we went out to cast this movie, it was March of 2020. That was when March of 2020 was when we said, okay, we're scripts ready. Let's get it to an actor. And then the, the pandemic happens, you know? And so it's like, when are you going to, you know, when are we going to film this? And we really didn't know, you know, but, you know, I think part of being a filmmaker means you have to be a little crazy. And uh, I just believed that no matter what happened, we would shoot that year, you know, and I knew very well, it might not be until 2021, you know, I was like, okay, but I was like, we're going to film this year, I, you know, whatever happens. And, you know, a few months later, we landed uh, our amazing lead actor, Tom Pelfrey. And, uh, you know, right when he was at the heat of Ozark, it was it just dropped and he was very in demand and he chose to take a chance on a first time director and do a little indie movie. Um, and around Tom, we were able to assemble an incredible cast with Ryan Philbe, Jackie Weaver, Adina Menzel, Chantel Van Santen, Paul Schneider, Moises Arias, Kevin Corrigan. I mean, I'm a first time director. These are actors who have been, who have worked some of the best filmmakers in the industry. So for me, it was really a wild dream come true that we could get them. And then around, once the cast all came together, the financing was pretty quick. Productivity did most of it, although there were, <laughs> there were even more companies than you listed. And, uh, you know, I was very happy when we were picked up by Saban for North American distribution and also uh, Universal is doing our foreign distribution. So uh, it's a lot of companies, a lot of people, you know, a lot of teammates. <laughs> I think well over 300 or 400 people worked on this movie in total. So you point out early and we'll get more into the um, what your uh, vision, your vision of the, the th because it's true. It's a true story. Yeah. But um, what I was something that always comes up to me when I'm reading some of the mystery books, which have now, true crime, uh, which has now gotten into this this uh, sort of mode that started within Cold Blood. Uh, Truman Capote is credited, whether he likes it or not, because there's at times he was really unhappy with the way the, the book was received, um, as nonfiction novel. Mm. That's what the, that term came up with him. And uh, so truly, that means that there was uh the facts are there and i'm going to ask you next tell me just the facts of the crime and the his background but not just because we don't we weren't in the room you didn't interview anyone who was in the room who can say charlie said x and billy said y but this like a lot of some books it's not a whodunit right we knew who done it it's also not a will they be caught because we know the answer to this point no, <laughs> he, we know who he is, but he's on the run. So tell us about, uh, again, you didn't approach this as a documentary. So tell us about sort of the background of the guy and how you molded your vision to, to not be just, just the facts, ma'am. Right. Uh, that's interesting what you said about Uncopla. It's one of my references for this film. Uh, I love, I mean, the book is great, and I, but I love the film as well. Um, the Richard Brooks film is just the kind of actually one of the first mainstream true crime films, if not, yeah, it's one of the first big mainstream true crime films and certainly like the, the prototype of the genre, um, you know, of, of what that became, um, you know, yeah, as you know, I think we've talked about before, you know, I see, I see my genre because I'm writing another true crime, uh, film right now that's based on, uh, Gary Drobin's book, for socialite scorned um and that's called that script's called the socialite and that's you know and, and they're the same league which is true crime i call it true crime fiction so american murder is based on a true story that i did research very extensively um you know and there was a lot to learn about jason and 
I did interview people. I didn't interview his family. You know, I stayed away from that because of creative for creative purposes. You know, I didn't want to have their take influence mine um, on things. You know, I found myself quite sympathetic to the family just in what I read about them and, and research as much as I could um, so that I could have authenticity. My role model in this way as a filmmaker is Michael Mann. I read a story recently in the New Yorker where he's in New York magazine where he's researching Ferrari. He's doing a film about Enzo Ferrari right now. And he's making sure that the window shades in the bedroom are the right kind of window shades. And it sounds crazy, but I love that, you know, and that's the level I'm trying to get to. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of information because Jason left so many photographs of himself behind videotapes of his boat parties and ski trips and all these things. And some of which I did get to see, um, you know, and there's so much out there about him publicly, but, you know, I did also interview some people who knew him and gave me great anecdotes, some of which are in the film, you know, some of the characters are what you call composites, you know, so, so they're based on like a couple different people and I've combined them into one because the challenging thing about telling a true story is, you know, true life, real life often does not play out like a film narrative. You know, film narratives are extremely designed, right? To, you know, a screenplay is designed to move an audience a certain way. Um, you know, my, I'll, I'll name drop my mentor, Billy Ray again. He says, screenplays are an intellectual exercise designed to elicit an emotional response. You know, and so that's what you're trying to do with the screenplay. Like I want to do when I write a screenplay as much thinking for my audience so that when they sit down and you sit down and watch the movie, you don't have to. Right. And so, you know, in, in doing the story, like I did all this research and probably know way too much for my own good about Jason Brown <laughs> and his upbringing and all that. But then, you know, and even this applies also to my actors because, you know, some actors really want to know everything. Chantel is brilliant as she plays the sister Jamie in the film. She would want to know what, what did, you know, what the characters wear, what, where did they live, like wanted every, every detail. And Tom, you know, liked to know it at first, read the script, but then kind of trusted what was there. It's always about, you know, getting that history and that information, but then not boring people with it because that's not what's important. What's important is that the film feels authentic, right? And that you strive for authenticity, not necessarily realism or accuracy, but authenticity. And they are two different things in my view. But at every minute, I was on the edge of my seat because each scene not only was interesting character-wise to watch the characters work through and the interaction of family. This was family. It's a family film about a family. Um, not a family. Right. Film. Not for family not audience. Family. <laughs> no, 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 don't bring, don't bring your, your, your six-year-old Matthew with you. But uh, it was uh, a, a, about a family. So that, that was, yeah, but then when you got into the tension of, you know, he's being chased by hoods who want money from him and so on and so forth, you know he's going to, you know, come into some bad things. So since my uh, listeners have not, at the time of this taping, had an opportunity to see the film American Murder, let's give him the uh, Wikipedia outline of the life and crimes of Jason Derrick Brown. So the facts were of the case, you know, November 29th, 2004, uh, Jason Derek Brown robbed an armored truck and murdered a guard, took off with a bag of $60,000 and has never been seen or heard from since. Now, 
most, you know, it's going to be interesting to see as audiences, because I have had audiences who have no idea, you know, Jason Derek Brown came from a uh, unique upbringing to say the least. His father was, he was actually from a very, uh, there was a, at first a strict Mormon household. And then, but the father himself was a bit of a shady character, a con man himself. And this con man uh, really coached Jake, who was played by Kevin Corrigan doing very well in the film and only one scene, but he's great. And uh, he coached Jason in the ways of con artistry, taught him a lot of illegal things, how to just, you know, and mainly how to disappear. Uh, Jason's father disappeared himself in 1994, 10 years before Jason did. So there's a, li- a bit of an odd connection there. Um, but Jason Derek Brown, you know, by most accounts was around 18, you know, heading to be a Mormon missionary in France, went to college, went to business school, was married, living a straight Mormon life. And around the time his father went missing, when he was in his early 20s, uh, he allegedly dropped out of business school left his wife and became obsessed with wealth, image, and more of a life of sin, I guess, and rebelled against the Mormon strict upbringing, you know, gambling, drinking, partying, and fell into a life of doing petty cons, which, you know, the con itself, the, the cons he does, which we show in the film are quite interesting. It's, it's really about like him showing off what a rich guy he is to people. You know, and there was actually one of the FBI agents called him, nicknamed him the $10,000 millionaire because Jason was never worth more than $10,000, but he always, he was always in debt, but he was always flaunting off Cadillacs and BMWs. And he was basically just, you know, just committing bank fraud, going into loan offices, you know, conning them, pretending to be other people, using aliases, using fake IDs. So he was always, you know, committing cons and he was very convincing. He was good at, you know, convincing people that he was this wealthy businessman uh, who worked from home and had this kind of fun life. And, you know, my theory on Jason is I think he, you know, he wanted wealth and he wanted success without having to do any work for it. This is a guy who I think at the core is driven by a desire to be liked by all, you know, and he always wanted to be the life of the party and the the party king. And that was his, you know, in many ways he resembles what they call a frat boy you know, or that kind of guy. Um, but, you know, that was his, that was what was really, it seemed to be driving him. And in his own mind, he became so desperate to get back to where he was as eventually his cons started to, you know, catch up to him and he couldn't do what he did. And so he, you know, did the unthinkable and committed this heinous crime and looped a lot of people. You know, the film is about the crime, the manhunt, and the people who knew and who loved him. One of the things, and this is actor and this is director and cinematographer, you know, when you're talking about close-ups and stuff, that one of his ways of conning, he does it several times, is convincing people like someone's dying of cancer or something. And he cries in his car. At one point, he's rehearsing to make sure he can get the tears to flow. And then yeah. there's other times where he's with his mother and with other people. And you're, it's never clear to me, only seeing it once, which is how you come away from a movie, if he's ever serious, if he's ever really scared. He comes and going, I'm in trouble. They, the, the mob or whoever they are want me for 40,000. Right. And I would be scared, but also because of just the way he runs and, and, and does a you know, tuck and roll on all of this stuff, you're going, is that now real? 
or is that fake? Do you want to tell me, do you think at any time he was ever serious uh, with his emotion when he was with people? I mean, was, was any of that ever genuine? You know, I get asked that a lot. And I think the answer is, I think a part of him had to believe to do these cons so well. I think a small part of his brain, as this is someone who studies con artists a lot and finds them endlessly fascinating, I think a part of his brain did feel these were real. You know, I think, like, you're t- I know you're talking about the scene with him and Jackie Weaver, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because that scene, you know, Jackie plays Jason's mother and she's really the character who can just see right through him, which is in many ways the con man's worst nightmare is the person who can see through their BS. So I think there is that desperation, but yes, then the scene after he's laughing it off and like, you know, so I think it's almost like it's someone who has so many sides to, and that's what I think made Jason so fascinating and made him ultimately be a character that reached across that screen and said, come write a movie about me is he has so many different sides and dimensions to him, you know, and we were never really trying to make him likable. That was never the goal of the movie, you know? That's okay if you do like him at first, but you know, that's never that was never our intention. Our intention was to show you this character, this you know, antiheroes being generous from all these different vantage points. So that by the end of the movie you get this 360 degree view and you're asking the question, was it real? Was it not? And my answer to that is I think a part of it at some points had to be. I don't think if he wasn't, I don't think he could have because one thing that was very important to me was to make sure this movie was not a movie where Jason was just a smart con man who's getting one up over on people and everyone else is stupid. And that was something Tom and I talked about when Tom first signed on to play Jason. That was a concern he had. The script that he signed on to, he was like, you know, because it, it came in how we execute these scenes because there's two ways to go about it. And some of the script was actually much more like wink winky, you know, like he would do something, you kind of would see him kind of like roll his eyes, the camera, and those things I kind of stripped away as we worked on it, because I really wanted you to, to not know and to, to be in, you know, Adina Menzel's character's eyes at that moment. You know, it's like, well, and I think that one, again, one point you, you point out that I think is probably an advantage to being a screenwriter and the director is that you don't have an ego one way or the other. So you can decide to cut something out of the script, you know, have a the writer going, I really like that line. That's a line. <laughs> but speaking of speaking of lines, what is the I forget, but it was so good and so well delivered. What was the line the mother delivers to, that really cuts him to the quick? Does any part of that brain of yours just tell you to stop? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> and that did, whether it really did or not, that was sort of like, no, I'm not giving you any money. You know, I mean, yeah. that, I think he had to see, okay, you know, now, of course, I'm going to wander through and steal the watch and the whatever. Uh, but Well, that's because that's how Jason is. His mind is always, you know, doing so many things at once. You know, it's like, okay, this person gave up on me. I got to go to that person. You know, he's constantly on the go. And it's a really interesting thing to do because actually something Tom just said in his interview that I'll you know, say also for myself is like he and I are both kind of one project at a time kind of guys. I'm very much like that. Yeah, I spent years on this film, years on my next one already. So, you know, I'm one project at a time. It's hard for me to do seven things at once. Jason, though, is one of these people that does 20 things at once. You know, he's always constantly moving. And that's what the mom's calling him out on. You know, it's it's like, can you just stop and sit down for a second? Because if Jason did just sit down and take a breath, right? Maybe he wouldn't have, you know, thought up such awful schemes, you know, that led to what 
Um, so, Matthew, let's take a few minutes now and, and move away from uh, the characters as you wrote them and what it was like working with this fine cast in bringing uh, your vision of these characters onto the screen. Yeah, you know, um, as I was saying earlier, I was very lucky to have such an incredible cast. And there's a lot of directors who will tell you that 90% of directing is casting. Um, and, you know, casting well is so important. I learned on some shorts that if you do, I did, that if you do miscast, it's a, that's a very hard error to recover from. So, you know, Howard Hawks, one of my favorite directors, and he always said a great movie is three great scenes and no bad scenes. Um, so, you know, there are often in a movie and you want to be partial, of course, and not over, you know, like I said, this whole cast was so spectacular. Everyone from Tom, you know, who is such a incredible dynamic and interesting actor who's really like starting to have a, a, a huge moment or, you know, you look at someone like Ryan Philippe, who, even though Ryan looks my age, uh, he's been doing it for about as long as I've been alive as an actor. He's been working for such a long time and has stories with Robert Altman and Clint Eastwood and all these amazing directors. Um, and is such a pro and someone who I would look to sometimes because Ryan's directed a movie himself. And sometimes I'd, you know, be like, hey, Ryan, did I need that shot? <laughs> and he'd be like, you're good. Or he'd be like, yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, I, I kind of treated these people a little bit like it's my own, you know, it's film school in a way. You know, I'm learning from them. I'm, I have my vision. I know what I want. I'm prepared. I'm flexible to ideas, but I, I have the vision that I'm serving, you know, a movie that I'm trying to make. And that's, that comes first and foremost. But these were incredible collaborators who really helped me um, navigate things as a first time director, mm -hmm. uh, which is a challenging thing to do. It's also challenging making a movie in COVID. It's challenging making a movie, period. So we had all three challenges going at once on this thing. Um, you know, in terms of scenes, scene by scenes, I mean, the pawn shop opening scene of the movie, you know, the, the beginning of the film starts with Jason Derrick Brown going into a, a pawn shop and essentially putting on a performance. Mm -hmm. And openings always for me, that was the hardest thing for me as a writer, because figuring out how to open this film correctly, um, you know, even though it's called American Murderer, you know, some audiences will know, your audience probably will know because they'll research the case most likely. Um, but a lot of audiences don't know who the murderer is or who, when the murder is going to happen, you know. Um, so when you first meet Jason Derrick Brown, he's coming in, you see him as a con man and we reveal him to you that in the cold, crisp light. That's what he is. And that scene took a lot for me to really get right on the page. But ultimately, the opening scene of the movie is a microcosm of the whole film in one scene. He comes into a pawn shop. He does a con. He's, his past catches up with him, but he quickly escapes and gets away just by the skin of his teeth. And that's basically the whole film in a nutshell, right? So the pawn shop opening was great. And we actually shot that scene on the second to last day. On the last day, we shot the final scene, which also doesn't normally happen. So we had the opening and the ending on the last two days. So we, you know, when we shot the ending, um, you know, among the sequence of him essentially saying goodbye to his former identity, packing up and leaving, we, um, the final shot was him walking off deep into the snow, which I did kind of as a film school. I actually, the shot, the final shot of the movie is a reference for all the film nerds out there to two uh, my favorite films, um, The Searchers by John Ford and Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir, um, who are in my holy trinity of great directors with Akira Kurosawa. So I, um, we moved a dolly shot down and the character walks off and the shot is he walks off into the snow through the window and we watch him go and the camera, you know, pushes until it stops by the window. 
And it was really hard to do this shot because, so we had snow machines, even though we were filming in Utah and it was freezing cold. The snow itself was inconsistent as it always is. And everyone who films movies knows that real snow, real rain are very hard to replicate. Even like the big guns who have money to pay for, you know, real machines sometimes say it's not good enough. Um, I remember one of my first memories when I was 14 was Scorsese had a, a rain machine in New York City. He was filming The Departed in, in Brooklyn, actually, where I grew up. And I remember seeing like a machine the size of the aliens from War of the Worlds. And it was jumping rain on Leonardo DiCaprio. And I remember seeing that. We didn't get that kind of machine. We had a small snow machine for our shoot. But it was, they were, it was actually pretty good. And but by the time it came time to film the shot, all of a sudden for 40 minutes we had real snow. Um, and so we went for it, we took it, and we did the shot. And magically, our lead actor, Tom, even though my cinematographer and I, we walked through that window 700 times, figuring out how exactly it was going to be, where the camera was, what lens we were going to be on. Nobody ever was able to quite disappear into the window slit. Um, we tried it and nobody quite got there, but the one take we did, the first take we did, Tom walked and disappeared right away. And so it became a perfect metaphor for the movie and all of that, but I, it's also one of the, I think it's the only shot I did one take of. Now, this isn't um, a film about drugs, but there is, uh, you know, at times some uh, use of cocaine uh, by the characters. And I'm sure your, your budget didn't allow for um, real cocaine. So how did you uh, shoot those scenes? <laughs> Not real cocaine. Um, there's one, there's a few scenes where Jason's character uses it and other characters partake with him. Um, but I learned on the movie, because I'd never filmed anything with cocaine before in it, in the script, that um, actors are using vitamin D. There actually apparently used to be a totally different technique. I was learning on Scarface, apparently. She probably has the record for the most cocaine usage in a film. But the character was, they, they used to have these certain fritters they would use, and you could you would actually blow the, the, the thing, the drugs, the powder out so that it wouldn't go up into your nose. But what they do now is they snort vitamin D in the form that looks like uh, cocaine. And so it's good for you, but it does uh, make you a little more amped. And we shot a scene where things go really wild where Tom's character, Jason Derek Brown asks his friend Kyle to rob an armor truck, um, played by Moises Arias, who's excellent in the film as well. And he asks him to rob an armor truck and the friend guys and this is above the pay grade. They're kind of one up in each other. And in the scene, they're doing cocaine as they talk about this idea. And so Tom's character gets more and more and more jazzed. And part of why that is, other than that, he's a great actor, he's able to do it, is he was snorting the vitamin D. <laughs> so when you snort 12 lines of vitamin D, uh, you know, it'll, it'll get you up. And I remember Moises saying to me, he was like, man, because Moises was kind of touching it and being like, okay, I'm good. He was like, your, your boy is in it. <laughs> this guy is going all the way for you. And he really did. And it speaks to as a much as funny of a story as it is that he did that much vitamin D. You know, it speaks to how uh, committed Tom was to the role and committed of an actor he is. Because he was there, you know, he would he, the physical shape he kept himself in, he would be, you know, he'd go home. And I think he would, 
he would call me and he'd be on the Peloton and he'd be doing it for four hours, you know, <laughs> and just constantly working out and, 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 and then do, doing pull-ups on set. I remember when, like the scene we had filming the pull-ups, <laughs> doing pull-ups on one shot and he like banged his head on the bars. He was doing so many. And he was like, ah, oh, fuck. You know, it was just, he was so in it. He didn't even like, he would really forget where he was. <laughs> it was cool to see. And uh, we want to mention, of course, that you certainly had a lot of, uh, friends and some family um helping you on the production of the film as well didn't you yeah it's a family affair in general because you know yeah my cinematographer Clea robinson she went to film school with me at the afi we did you know six shorts together before we did this i mean someone who we know each other's work inside now my editor matt allen you know who was editor score producer visual effects super just really like did wore so many hats on this film and really was like my post-production supervisor all the way through and you know it was like a director and co-director of post with me you know he really was in it all the way then i have an editor named chris young who's also an editor on the film and he's my he, would, he worked on the script with me for like two and a half years before we shot he would just read every draft and we would read them out loud and we would talk about every scene and the plan and he helped me design soundscapes which matt also collaborated on so you know and then of course yes my brother scott gentile who this is his first feature film and he was a you know my brother's a composer and pianist and uh conductor by his day job um but you know he came in and helped uh, me make this movie and pulled off the impossible I mean, he wrote i think 27 pieces of music for the film total lasting about 40 minutes of the film so he had he had a huge role in making you feel whatever you feel during the film because emotion and the, you know the, the way he used he's a very creative guy my brother um and it's you know it's a, such a joy to work with him he also won the award at boston uh for his score him and tom both took home uh trophies uh, for best music best actor so you know i was proud that was a proud moment for me um to see these two now score. um obviously as you discussed it all the it uh You've been working on it for a while, and then there was COVID, and then obviously there's there's pre when you're really getting ready to go in post, and but you know money's money uh, to spend on actual shooting. What was the approximate shooting time? Uh, weeks, months. Uh, yeah, we filmed uh, our shooting schedule was tight. Twenty two days we filmed the whole movie. Um, you know, Spielberg had ten to shoot Duel, so <laughs> we had twenty two to do this. Oh come um, on, Duel was just a big truck. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know, I could shoot that in an afternoon. Yeah, I think it might have been. Oh, atheist. I love He's that great. movie. So love that movie. You know, we world premiered at the Terramina Film Fest in Sicily, and I found out that that was where Duel world premiered. Uh, I was pretty happy. I didn't even know that until I got there. They told me, and I was what that's crazy um i love dual I, I actually have that poster on my wall in my apartment um but yeah it was a 22-day shooting schedule we had some extra what they call pickup days where we're shooting like cars driving and whatnot um but yeah 22 days 27 locations um you know action set pieces uh you know a swat invasion a murder sequence uh, some stunts, some action, you know, it, it, it was a lot for a first time feature and an indie film. Uh, it was, it was, we were trying to do what we were ambitious, um, you know, and I think we mostly did it, but you know, you learn a lot as you make movies and I'm already prepping my second one and thinking, you know, what is that, you know, what am I going to be, you know, cause you learn, like you have all these plans and these ideas and then it's like, what can we actually pull off?
Now, did you shoot anything on a sound stage, or was it all locations? No sound stages. No sound stages. No, uh, you know, no cranes. Right. It was. Uh, yeah, we had some steady cam. We had some cool. We had some toys, but not a ton. We were really with a jib. But you know, it was. Um, it was all real locations, um, and I think that contributes uh, to the movie's authenticity. Um, you know, we shot in Salt Lake City, which is not where the real crime took place. The crime actually took place in Phoenix. There's a 360 panoramic shot. Yeah, that goes, that circles Jason. Right. I think that's right before the murder. Yeah. And Um, I'm looking for the shadow, of course. I'm saying, you know, (laughs) your light. And I I do this all the time watching TV and it's like, or even the the silly, you know, football cameras and all that stuff. I'm saying, well, why am I not seeing the, you know, or the guy's walking down a thing and they're doing a, you, the commercials where the person's riding a, a motorbike or something and we're going to get from, we're going to get the front of them. Then we're going to, oh, come, come on. I don't know if you're, on, I don't care if you're on a crane or something. There's got to be a shadow somewhere. And I'm sure it has to do with picking the right time of day and blah, blah, blah. But I, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a tough shot. And we were doing it at magic hour. Um, and it was very tricky to get it, to get it to work. Um, and doing 360 degrees is, is hard. Um, but we were, you know, visual effects does help because uh, occasionally we would, you know, you might see a shadow of a microphone or something, and you know, and it's always, always a challenge. Um, but fortunately, you know, you try your best to do it all on camera, but we're very lucky that we live in an era with VFX where you can fix things like that, especially if a shot static, it's pretty easy to clean it up um you know yeah you can totally you can erase it and um i always thought to myself i was like i imagine if i was talking like the older great directors like david lean or kurosawa like i feel like they would have seen us and be like oh you brats (laughs) you know we had to go through like you know why lawrence of arabia he had to do all those takes where they would you know have the camel walk into the you know walk down the sandscape and then well matthew i I hate to let you go i i'd love to just sit here all afternoon listening to your stories and picking your brain about movie making not that i'm ever going to try it but um i can see my zoom my free zoom uh it's going to expire very quickly and unfortunately i'm just a poor country podcaster so i don't have the uh the paid version but is there anything you'd like to say to my audience uh, when this comes out, the movie will be um, going to be opening in the theaters uh, across the country. A limited engagement, of course, but will be in the theaters. And of course, after that, which is great, it will be available for streaming. And that's where everyone in the country can see it. So let's uh, tell us about those uh, nuts and bolts about uh, distribution. American Murderer will be out in theaters on October 21st, and it will be out on streaming and digital on demand on October 28th. Um, so you'll be able to rent it on all transactional video on demand platforms. Great. Well, once again, uh, my folks, uh, I hope you found this interesting. I'm trying after doing this for two years, I'm getting tired of Ted Bundy and, and Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, you know, so uh, doing something that's a little different, um, but covering a murder and covering uh, getting in the mind of a murderer. And even if we haven't covered it here, the movie absolutely does. So I'm sorry, folks, you're going to have to go see the movie. And if you like to stream it at home, stream it at home. It's not like Star Wars. You don't have to see it on a big screen. You can see it at home on your 56-inch TV. So, Matthew, um, aside from going to see the movie, which we want everyone to do, um, obviously people after that are probably going to want to talk to you, maybe interview you, I hope, uh, maybe give you a job. 
So how can they reach Matthew Gentile? Uh, you can reach me on my website, MatthewGentileDirector.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at Matthew L. Gentile. There you go. Again, thanks so much, Matthew. Jim, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. I'm so excited uh, to hear this episode. And yeah, I will, uh, I'll tag it on my social and everything. In closing, folks, I'd like to make a, a pitch for uh, Matthew's uh, maybe next movie, but certainly a movie he's working on. And it's uh, ba this one's based on a book, A Socialite Scorned by Carrie Drobin. Uh, shout out to Carrie uh, on that book. Carrie was a guest earlier um, in my podcast series on her book, Aurora. The psychiatrist who treated the movie theater killer tells her story. So you might want to pick up that book now and uh, read it and become familiar with it. And hopefully I will have Carrie on to talk about her book. And I'll also have Matthew uh, back to talk about uh, his movie when he makes it. So I'm excited about all. I hope we're all still around then. So in the meantime, until we meet again, take care. And for God's sakes... Don't murder anyone.